Hey everybody, just real quick before the show started, uh, this is Steve, and I just wanted to let you know, for all the latest information on our podcast, hit us up on Twitter at EILF Movies, that's everything I learned from movies. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. If you're looking for incredible art, or maybe gifts for an upcoming uh, birthday, or Father's Day, Mother's Day, anything like that, Christmas, uh, you can check out Izzy's art at untidyvenus.etsy.com. You can also find us on all the uh, podcatchers like Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, whatever they're calling it these days, Podcast Addict. Uh, basically, Google us, you'll find us, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. All right, on with the show. Everything I learned from movies helps to make life a little bit groovy. With a one last plot holes a gratuitous movies. It's time to get busy with your friend Stephen John C. McGinley started his career on Broadway, but then evolved into roles in Oliver Stone movies like Platoon, Wall Street, and Talk Radio, and quickly became a Hollywood icon in movies like Point Break. Highlander 2, Seven, The Rock, Office Space, and Any Given Sunday. Uh, but perhaps he's best known for his role as Dr. Cox in the long-lived television series Scrubs, and currently starring in the IFC series Stand Against Evil, with Season 3 premiering on Halloween. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. McGinley was kind enough to join us on Everything I Learned From Movies. Uh, hello, is this John? Steve, how are you, pal? I'm great, how about yourself? Yeah, never better. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm here with my wife, Izzy. Hello. Hi, Izzy. Uh, Stand Against Evil Season 3 is coming up. Uh, what, 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 what can you tell us to expect for the season? Well, what's, what's so interesting is that the, the, the executive producer and creator of the show, Dan Gould, he's not afraid to paint himself into a corner. And so at the <laughs> end of Season 1, it's the end of the world. And so I asked him when we were down in Georgia two years ago, shooting the end of, of Season 2, I said, what, what, how are you going to get out of this? You've ended the world. And he said, I don't know. <laughs> and so I said, well, you're not going to do, you're not going to do the, the bogus JR, you know, uh, waking up, it was all a bad dream or not owning this, are you? And he didn't. And so what's fascinating, in 301, the first season of, of the first episode of the third season is called Hell is What You Make It. And so he makes the two protagonists, uh, Janet's character, Evie, and my character, Stan. Um, he posits that if they can make it through their own personal hells, uh, that they'll be able to, if they can navigate that landscape, which is pretty esoteric for a comedy horror show, yeah. but if they can navigate the, the landscape of their own personal hell, they can make it back to the land of the living. And I just, I thought it was genius. And yeah. then we shot it, and we, we chop, we've been chopping and editing since uh, I'm one of the producers on the show and uh, we cut that 301 together and it, it was done with such elan and, and such grace that it just sets up the whole third season and, and getting our two heroes back from the land of the dead uh, into, into their lives by charting their own personal hells. I just thought that was insanely creative for a, a half-hour horror comedy to do, and yeah. I just uh, it made me respect Danny even more than I than I do, which is almost impossible. Yeah. So, so what's it like working with uh, with Danny Gould and like kind of run the show with him as like producer and creator, kind of collaborating? Um, it is it is a collaboration. Dan is not afraid to collaborate. Um, we both uh, kind of took an unspoken oath to shepherd the tone of this show um more than more than anything else we've 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 hewed to the tone of the show and and the tone um of course is is comedy horror and and in that spectrum the two extremes would be the exorcist on one side we it's really scary but you can't you can't break a joke <laughs> and then the other extreme on that spectrum would be scooby-doo where <laughs> it's funny but the, the monsters are largely largely declawed, and so Stan lives in the middle there with with an American werewolf in London and Ash and some of these other shows that and movies, but not many that that have occupied that real estate. And it's a really hard tone to adhere to because it's really easy. 
excellent. Yeah, and I think the uh, the the perfect tone to find out if you really like the show is the uh, the wear pony episode. That's like the, the yeah, exactly. perfect middle ground. <laughs> I do. Everyone's seen a werewolf, so we were like, okay, um, what's what's more interesting than a werewolf? And of course, a wear pony is twice as interesting. And then you get Stephen Ogg to play him, and yeah. now now you got something going. So I have to ask you, and I asked uh, Dana Gould this as well, is it true that all the love in the world lives in Steve Ogg's eyes? <laughs> He's a pretty great actor, boy. We, uh, we're we lucky enough, uh, at least crew-wise, to be able to, to, to take as many of the uh, living dead people um, as possible. If you have that on your resume, you, you're pretty much on our crew, because usually they're on hiatus when we're down there shooting. And so, because they're cream of the crop, uh, we've we've put together a, a crew that's just bulletproof, and and they've all been there, done it, seen it on a much higher budget than ours. Their craft services would be able to produce a, a, a an episode of Stan, but we've we've used all their effects people, their sound. We've 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 used all people from from the different shows shooting down there. Um, and Stephen came in for a day or two, and he stole the episode, which he should. Dana wrote it for him, and his schedule worked out, and that was a that was a happy result. It doesn't always work that way. Excellent. Well, and you uh, mentioned like the role was written for him. Uh, was the Stan role written for you, or was there like a series of no, auditions? Not. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> how, how did you get involved with the project? Uh, Dana sent it to me. Uh, it was an offer, and I just my my sole apprehension was that I thought they were that what Dan was missing in the subsequent episodes that he sent me um, was that how how hurt and damaged this guy was that the fact that we see in the first three minutes of the pilot that he's lost his wife of 27 years and his job of, of 26 years and he's largely lost and injured and I said I want to explore the injuries and otherwise I don't care about that I want to know what what men do when they're injured um, emotionally, physically, it doesn't matter. What, what men do and how they can or cannot reconcile the injury uh, is what I wanted to explore. And I said, you already put this on the page. I had nothing to do with this. You've written a really broken, injured guy. Uh, and I, I want to explore that. And he absolutely promised me we would. And he was good to his word. And, and for a lot of, at Comic-Cons from San Diego and New York, where we have a lot of access to, to the people who watch the show, um, Stan's kind of the emotional arc that Stan's been allowed to explore resonates the most profoundly with our fans. I mean, they like the monsters and all that, but 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 like the 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 the, uh, the last episode of season two, um, when Stan and Evie have that great walk and talk before he goes back in time to get his wife, and then the scene with his wife. That's the stuff that people are. That's what they respond to. So we took that and we let Stan and Evie own a really delicious emotional arc in season three. Excellent. Oh, I'm so excited. And it's all born out of Stan being an injured man, a damaged, injured guy. I know Steve and I both grew up with dads who were kind of like similar to Stan, like a little gruff and kind of stoic and, like you know, like, you know, grown men don't cry kind of thing. And so... I know for me sure. it's really fascinating watching this arc, and I know Steve's always got a soft spot for, for the dad father figures. Oh, sure. My my dad was a a sheriff for sixteen or seventeen years, so yeah, I. I and military police. Before oh, military that. police before that, yeah, a long time, but yeah, it's a it's a yeah great character arc that uh, Stan's going through, and I'm really excited to see how it continues on in season three. And you've done such a great job with it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. It's just it's something that resonates for me. Um, when it's you can't always as sometimes when it's a supporting character and all that you, you got to kind of you got to go in, in a linear way from a to b to c to d and, and do what the script tells you but in it when i was in a position to be able to shape and 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 mold the arc of this guy uh i pounced on it um i just i said danny you've written this this you've written this guy and you know danny's so humble he's just like well it's just my dad you know he's a jackass i'm like no 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 no. <laughs> you've written a much richer guy than that Not, nothing against your father but you've you've written a guy who who's willing to make he's, he's willing to t- 
time travel and sacrifice unheard of things to get his wife back and to get Evie back. And if we take this, I, I realize it's, it's, it's just a horror comedy and all that, but if we take it at, at its face value, this guy's willing to go, he, he's willing to do some insane things to try to get right. Whether it's to get his wife Claire back or to, to bring Evie back from a couple hundred years ago, who, nobody does that. If this guy does, even if, as reluctantly, as begrudgingly as he does, he does in fact do it. Yeah. And that's a big poker tell. And so he can sit on his on his can and and watch the History Channel in that chair and and be an equal opportunity, <laughs> um, you know, put downer like Archie Bunker from that archetype. But um, he does what Archie doesn't. In, in the bottom of the ninth, when the bases are jacked, you want him coming in from the pen and delivers, which is a delicious thing to play. Yeah. Oh. Oh yeah, yeah. He's, he's such a loyal character to everybody that he cares about. And But what's great is, like, he even, you know, cracks jokes and, you know, tells stories out of school about Claire, and she's obviously, you know, the greatest thing that ever happened to him, but, you know, and he's so hard on Deborah Baker Jr.'s character, her, his daughter, and yet you can tell, like, he just loves her so much, he would do anything for any of those guys. Right, and I mean, I, I think it's important to work backwards from there. That's that's the point of departure. If you if you're gonna make them kind of the, like some of our parents, this gruff, that generation of people who were who were they were rough. And if you're gonna if you're gonna do all that rough stuff, we, we have to go back and reconcile something. Otherwise, I'm changing the channel. And and I, I guess the easiest analogy is what Carol O'Connor and Norman did with with Archie Bunker and Archie's ballast. Everything for Archie, for us, was Edith. Edith defined everything about Archie. Otherwise, he was just a donkey. But because of Edith and because of her love for him, we, that means there's something there. That means this guy, because she's, she's so, Jean was so amazing, and, and, and Edith is so stunning, and that she loves this guy. I wouldn't say unconditionally. There are conditions. <laughs> but that, that she showers this guy with love and loyalty. I worked backwards from there, from that archetype. I, I gave this no small amount of thought before I said, yes, I'd do it. Excellent. Well, we're all certainly glad you did. Oh, <laughs> it's yeah. a great show. Um, and I also understand you're uh, part of a, a documentary by Paul Sanchez called Brothers in Arms. That's about the making of Platoon coming out soon. Is that correct? Yeah, Paulie, Paulie, I've known Paulie for, I guess, 30 years. And uh, he called me up and he said, uh, I'm thinking about doing uh, kind of this, because everybody's largely still alive. Um, yeah, that's true. Uh, this testimonial of, of being cast in Platoon and then going and doing it. Not really about the afterwards or all that and what what happened to them after, but mostly this this group of, what's eight times, 24, this group of 24 people who were, except for Tom and Willem, were unknown. Charlie had done almost nothing. And uh, he said, I just want to come and film everybody and talk about what you were doing when you were casting this thing. And then what your experience was being in the Philippines during a revolution. And he did it. He, I don't know how he did it, but he did it. Uh, and I've seen it. And I'm not a producer on it, but I've helped him craft a lot of it. Um, and now he sold it to Gravitas and they're going to put it out the second or third week of November, which is just, I don't know if you guys have ever made an independent film before, but it's close to impossible. So when you actually do it, and he got Johnny to talk, and he got, I think the only person he didn't get was Forrest. I think Forrest was just busy doing something. Um, but he got everybody. He got Willem, Tom, uh, Johnny's in there for a long time, Charlie. Uh, I guess the only person who passed is Francesco, uh, Francesco Quinn uh, oh, passed right. yeah. a couple of years ago, but everybody else is still, and they're all in the movie, and they're all independently talking about these stories, and it's genius. It's completely genius. Yeah, we, we love, like, the making of documentaries and stuff. Uh, I so do. We're super excited to, <laughs> to check it out. It's... I love making of. Do you remember, I don't know if you guys are old enough, did you guys have laser discs when they first came out? Oh, yes. We still have... A big trouble, little China laser disc uh, on our <laughs> mantle. There's a there was a the great part about 
those laser discs is that there was like a second and third audio channel where you could hear Scorsese talking about the making of Taxi Driver. You remember those? It was, it was, oh, yeah. like, it was like the best part of the whole thing. Oh, yeah, where you could hear a Fritz Lang, a, a doctorate of, of, of Fritz Lang talking about the making of M, and you're like, oh, it's, it's just my favorite, my total favorite. Uh, we gotta get some more laser disc now. <laughs> yeah, it's like the first time you could do like audio commentary. Yeah, yeah, correct. Right? Yeah, a lot of DVDs with audio commentary and the director's tracks and stuff. Love those. But <laughs> uh, that's awesome. But I'm talking about before DVDs. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Big record size, those LP size oh, yeah. um, um, laser discs. They were my favorite. Yeah, they're like what, 14 inch wide or something like that. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're big guys. And, and who, who is the really cool ones? Were the really art house ones? Were black and white ones were by somebody what the heck was the name of them the company oh, that would put I don't out remember. the really cool ones but I remember the first oh, one oh I can't we, think of it darn it the first one we remember we realized it had the audio commentary oh was, Criterion Criterion, Criterion collection. collection those were the cool oh. ones yeah we had a Treasure of the Sierra Madre was the first one we realized oh, had a commentary you're so you're so you, can't, you don't even know the treasure right below your feet <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Oh my god, that's amazing. Well, and uh, okay, so uh, Platoon was like your first big break, but if if you don't mind going back, uh, just letting us know kind of where where you grew up, what your family life was like, and kind of how you got into acting and entertainment. I grew, up, I grew up in New York City. Was born and raised in New York, and then Dad was a salesman, so we moved out to we moved to Baltimore. Then we moved to a couple of different spots in Jersey, and then we wound up in this lovely suburb. Um, outside of Newark, uh, called Milburn, New Jersey, mm-hmm. and then it was uh, kind of this suburban upbringing. Everything was about sports. Um, absolutely, everything was about sports. Um, we go to summer camp every summer up in New Hampshire, a boys' sports camp, and then I was just a jock. Um, and then by the time I got to uh, Syracuse, um, I started taking classes at Newhouse, and I just started writing reams and reams of copy for upperclassmen. But I wasn't allowed to do it because the upperclassmen are the only ones allowed to do the um, copy that you wrote. And that led me to kind of storytelling. And so I transferred down to NYU, uh, went to NYU grad, um, which is a theater conservatory. Uh, got out, started doing off-Broadway plays. And that's where Oliver found me when John went to do, uh, we were doing a play by John Shanley called Danny in the Deep Blue Sea. John would go on to win an Academy Award for Moonstruck. And so we were doing this two-hander, and John went to do, John uh, Totoro went to do um, Desperately Seeking Susan, and so he was gone for about nine performances, and somebody came down, an assistant to an assistant to an assistant came down, a casting person, to see John, and they saw me instead, and so I was invited to go audition for Oliver, and I did, and I got uh, a tiny, tiny role in Platoon, and then the film was canceled for two years, um, because of money problems and then I just did I did everything I did everything not to go back to be a waiter I'd do anything it didn't matter <laughs> uh, I was doing Another World for two years uh, I did a bunch of films I did every off-Broadway play that got offered to me uh, and then I was doing Hamlet with Kevin Klein, a very big important Hamlet um, a director named Livy Chule came in from the Guthrie and we were two weeks into rehearsal and I was you know third guy on the right and understudying Laertes and so we were two weeks into the sword fight and with B.H. Barry who was the big um, fight director du jour at the time and Oliver calls and says we're doing Platoon two years later and uh, he says uh, uh, you gotta come and you can play the you can play the fourth lead you can play Sergeant O'Neill and I'm like oh my god Uh, I gotta I gotta go ask Mr. Papp because Joe Papp was the equivalent of, of Johnny Friendly and on the waterfront. You would never, <laughs> ever cross, once you're in that fraternity slash sorority of being in the New York Shakespeare Festival, which I squarely was, uh, you just, that's, you want to stay in that. And Oliver's film was a, a low-budget, independent thing that may or may not ever see the light of day. It was a $6 million movie. And so I went in and asked Mr. Papp if I could go to the Philippines. And... It was tantamount to going and seeing the wizard when when Dorothy goes and sees him <laughs> in this great hall. And you remember that the theater down 
downtown on Lafayette Street is the old Astor Library, and so, you know, the vaulted ceilings are 30 feet high, and so you go in and you see Mr. Papp, and, you know, he, he was, he had a stogie, he always had a burner, and he was way back in here, and he said, Mac, uh, you can go, tell Ollie I say hi, and we'll do, we'll do another Hamlet. <laughs> and I, I almost started crying, I, I was like, well, you mean it's okay? Said, yeah, yeah, you go, it's okay. And so I did. And as soon as I left his office, the uh, Philippine Revolution started, and the film was postponed for eight months. And so I, I lived in a funeral parlor, and on uh, Sullivan Street, I, I lived in the Nutrioni funeral parlor. And I, I sat there in the funeral parlor, and I watched Hamlet open, and it was, uh, <laughs> the archives called it the most important Hamlet on these shores. Oh. Wow. I'm watching, that's a hit. And then Cher comes and shoots, Moonstruck in my funeral parlor, and so I have Cher coming and going, and I'm just sitting here waiting for the revolution to finish, and uh, because Marcos got voted out, and a woman named Cory Aquino uh, was voted in, but Marcos decided he didn't want to leave, and so there was a very bloody revolution, yeah. and so we were postponed, and uh, I sat in a funeral parlor waiting for the revolution to finish, and when it did, we we went over there. And, and shot this low-budget, insanely ambitious film. And of course, we got back, and and Top Gun was the big Reagan-era war movie, and we were just like, okay, well, we're screwed because <laughs> we just we just shot Oliver's vision of, of young men dying and and loving each other in brotherhood, and this mechanized version of of the Reagan army of of, of Reagan. The modern military wasn't what we shot, and so everyone got home, and we were completely depressed because Top Gun was a huge hit, and we, our our story had nothing nothing in common with what presumably people wanted to consume at the box office. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely. Nothing says Christmas like Platoon, boy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was uh, my nephew's first war movie. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> Chris watched it the day he came home. Oh. <laughs> yep. But yeah, it was great. Like, what was the 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 shoot like there? Uh, you know, in, in the jungle in the Philippines, while oh, you got to see sure. Paul's movie. It, it become it's a it, it was a nightmare. Yeah. It was a nightmare. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, you got guys coming from funeral parlors in Greenwich Village trying to make pretend they were soldiers, and it was it was a nightmare. <laughs> it was a complete disaster, which is uh, perfect because the for the, the the war was disastrous. Yeah. Oh, well, and he also uh, continued working with Oliver Stone in the, his next couple movies with uh, Wall Street and Talk Radio and uh, a couple others later on. Uh, did, what, what's it like working with Oliver Stone? They're like, a little glib with a couple later later on. There's six, and you can't be that glib <laughs> with a couple later on. Well, well I was like, well, well I, I was more, we'll get There's to them, you know. A, any Given Sunday is probably the greatest sports movie ever made. I, I will wholeheartedly nah, say that. we're talking. Yeah, see? <laughs> you got to salt that peanut a little bit, baby. I, I'm I'm teasing him for a little later in the interview, you know. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, he did a couple films with Oliver Six. Um, and uh, how'd that go? That was really nice. Six. <laughs> my apologies. Oh, fuck. Six. <laughs> oh, those were nice films, John. <laughs> Holy shit! My, my apologies this for selling you short. <laughs> I'm still learning this stuff. No. <laughs> Here, let me fix this. Uh, Mr. McGinley, we heard that you did uh, quite a few epic tales with Oliver Stone. Would you there like to tell us about that? There we go. Oh. Izzy's my gal. <laughs> All right, I'm handing the phone over. <laughs> now we're talking. So, so, yeah, so what's it like working with Oliver Stone? What, what do you like about his directing style? I like that when you're on Oliver's set, you don't have to wonder who the, whose creative vision it is. A lot of sets you get on, and it's, it's vision got by committee, and nobody has any spine, um, and it's just a recipe for disaster. You get on Oliver's set, if you want to know something, if you have, if you have the spine to go ask him, you go ask him, you're going to get an answer. And it may or may not be in concert with what your homework yielded and, and the, the college of eccentricities that you brought to the set. 
I like when someone's in charge. You got to remember, there's 170, 160 men and women running around a set with their heads cut off, and someone's got to marshal all these people and put them on the same wavelength. Otherwise, like most films, it's going to be a, a train wreck. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, good singular vision. De- uh, otherwise, yeah, you get different weird things going on. And it's not it's not exclusive to Oliver. Catherine, when I did Point Break with Catherine, uh, yeah. she's the same way. You want an answer? Go ask Catherine. It's no, there's no monkey business. It's not men or women. It's it's someone with a central with a, a central vision, a single vision of what we're doing here today. Otherwise, it just gets to be quicksand, and you're dead. Now six hours go by. Your call time was five. Six hours have gone by. Now it's eleven o'clock in the morning, and we're standing around twiddling our thumbs. It's a disaster. Yeah. Instead yeah. of just getting there and cranking. That's what you got to do. Yeah. Well, you, and you did play uh, Ben Harper there in uh, Point Break. Uh, are those your favorite kind of characters to play? Like kind of the 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 gruff. I don't like, have a favorite. Face? I don't oh, really don't have know. a favorite. Doctor Cox was fun. Stan's Stan's my favorite right now because we're in it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but I don't have a favorite. Doing playing playing on Broadway, playing in Glengarry with Al on Broadway. Um, that was, I guess, that was my favorite. Playing Dave Moss was. Uh, kind of everything led up to that. Being able to do Glengarry with Al and Bobby and Richard and uh, all these people, that was, everything kind of led up to that. Uh, you started working on the TV show Scrubs that lasted for nine or ten seasons, which is amazing shows. That... I'm sorry, Steve, he was on there for a little while. Hey, you're <laughs> you're, you're on a few episodes. episodes of this show called Scrubs. Yeah, that was Perhaps a good gig. Yeah. That was a really good gig. <laughs> yeah, how, uh, how was, I guess, like auditioning and getting in with that show? the audition is that in the pilot um, Bill Lawrence who's the executive producer and creator of the show in the pilot when Dr. Cox comes in there's in parentheses in the, in the script it says a John McGinley type and so oh. I read that and I'm like oh this is a lock <laughs> so I go and I meet Bill Lawrence and I go Billy you wrote uh, a John McGinley type in the parentheses I'm him I'm, I'm John McGinley I'm him um, and it's John C. McGinley by the way Bill um <laughs> And so uh, Billy goes, yeah, great. I, I kind of want you to do it. I'm like, what, what, is that, what, do you, what did you just say? You kind of, what does that mean? Are you, what, are you, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, you got to go through the different production entities. So in other words, Disney was producing it and NBC was exhibiting it. And so everybody looks at, likes to put their spoon in the soup. And so you have to jump through all those hoops. And I did, and it worked out. Excellent. Excellent. You, you're not just gifted this stuff. Unless you're a big star... You're not just gifted this stuff. You gotta. Yeah. When it when it came to old network television, you had to, you know, you had to really go meet and greet. Well, I know Scrubs stirred up some internet controversy. Uh, rumor has it you might be a fan of the Detroit Red Wings. Well, I'm a Detroit Chris Chelios, number twenty four, right. and so wherever because he's my neighbor and one of my dear friends, and so Chelly played on two of those Cup teams, and. So I, wherever Chelly went, that's where my loyalties went. Excellent. And so that's why I made Dr. Cox a, a Chelly fan, a Wings fan, but it was really because he was a, a Chelly fan. Nice. I say, was it the Ch- Chelly's Chilies, the, the T-shirt? He yeah, of course. They just sold that. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> nice. With working on that show, like, was that like absolutely scripted, or was there like some improv and stuff like that involved? Yeah, a little bit of improv, but TV is so fast, and you're shooting so many pages, you got to... And, and, you know, there's 14, there were 14 writers on that. There were seven in, seven in one room and seven in, in the next room, and they would leapfrog every, every week's episode. And then Billy would, would ride buckshot over all of them. But he, all these kids, these men and women, they all went to Harvard, and they all were editors of the Lampoon, and they're really smart. And the, the stuff that's on the page is largely really good, very subversive and sardonic and... and, and really complicated different humor notes that you got to play you wanted to say what those guys put on the page trust me yeah. i mean you could add you could add a little flavor to to getting out of the scene to transitions but billy billy put almost everything on the page especially for dr cox because it was such a rhythm player you know those <laughs> those those one and a half two page single space rants those were all rhythm and and billy could write cox's rhythms Nice. Do you have any uh, favorite lines that you remember, or like favorite scenes? 
Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All I can think about is Stan. I'm just trying to remember Stan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like oh, that was that was years ago. Come on. <laughs> well, I'm not being a pill. I just oh no I just, no no. I can't yeah. remember everything. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a lot I, to I remember. remember uh, I remember we did one one episode on a broken heart syndrome, which is when a spouse dies after another spouse uh, from from no apparent reason, and in in medicine it's called tocosubo cardiomyopathy. And for some reason, I always remember, which is a little morose, but I always thought that, 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 that there's a Latin term, all medicine is Latin, all medicine language. And so that we did, that we dug up tocosubo cardiomyopathy, I just always felt spectacular. Yes. And then while you're shooting that, you're also, of course, still doing movies and other TV shows, but... Uh, one of my favorites was uh, Identity in uh, 2003 with uh, Dr. I thought Identity was great. Jimmy Mangold shot that. I thought it yeah. was great. Awesome. Yeah. How was that to work on? It was great. A bunch of all-stars. Johnny and I got to do, you know, Johnny Johnny and I have done about four or five together. We produced one, um, the Jack Bull. And it was great to be with Mangold. And, and Ray and I had already done um, uh, uh, Article 99 together in Kansas City. And... Uh, it was just a great group of actors to be on that one stage. We shot almost the whole thing on the one stage uh, down at uh, Sony. And that was, it was a gas. It was like shooting an old time movie just on one sound stage. It was great. Nice. Yeah, that sounds like a great experience, yeah. Um, and of course, you also did some uh, voiceover work with the Boondock show on a couple episodes as the White Shadow. Uh, what, what was it like doing the voiceover work for? It's great. Those guys were great. They were just, they were creatively on fire. And they, uh, there was something about my voice that, that they, they wanted to integrate into the landscape of their piece, and it felt great. It was one of those things where you could do no wrong. Yeah. Have you ever considered doing more that voiceover? It feels good to step into those. Sorry, have you ever considered doing like more voiceover or got any more offers and stuff? I do like it that? nonstop. I do it nonstop. I'm voicing, in, uh, I'm voicing Dragon for DreamWorks right now. I'm doing Dragon Rescue Riders, which is a kid's um, TV show that will come out next year. Oh, yeah. I do the voice for Carhartt. Do you know what Carhartt is? The yeah. Yeah. Blows. I've been the voice of Carhartt for about five years now. Um, I, you know, I do this stuff all the time. Just keep it. I just keep it under the right radar because as soon as you can identify the voice, it kind of it kind of ruins it. You just want to be the voice. You don't want it to be John McKinley doing Carhartt. But the, the Carhartt spots are spectacular. Oh, I, I love Carhartt. I grew up on a goat farm, and I still have. Oh my, my God! Carhartt you gotta check out when when we get off. Uh, uh, go to YouTube and look at the different Carhartt spots we've done for the last couple of years. Oh, it's been a number of years since I've had to buy a Carhartt product because they just last so long, but uh might be time to get some new stuff. <laughs> oh, it's great. It's fantastic. Yeah. They have new active gear that you're going to want to get your hands on. More towards that. more towards Under Armour and, and Nike, and they, they're kind of fighting that market, and it's great. Oh, oh that would really? be so good to have stuff like that that doesn't wear out. <laughs> yeah, that's always... great. It's great. So it was this issue I had playing basketball. So yeah, that'd be great. It actually last more than two or three weeks. Right? <laughs> uh, oh, and then uh, in 2012, another movie that I think is actually kind of underrated, uh, Alex Cross, uh, working with uh, Tyler Perry. Yeah, I, thought, you know. I thought the three, the three the first two acts of that were great. Yeah. I, I thought Tyler was great. Uh, I, I, I thought that was fantastic. And the third act is a little tricky. Resolving those those cops and robbers things are always hard in the third act but the first two acts are great they're really creepy the guy who plays the bad guy was fantastic yeah was the guy a, from Lost yeah Matthew Fox yeah he yeah. was great yeah he was it, really good yeah the, the third act's a little different but but were, were you there like on site and it, it was all shot there in Detroit right um no we were in Cleveland it was Cleveland for oh. Detroit oh oh okay okay because right when we were going to go to Michigan um the guy who was running for governor made the central plank on his on his platform to F Hollywood because uh, Grant Torino had just shot there and you know there were the tax breaks to, to encourage production and they were just like F Hollywood and so he got all those tax breaks reversed and so uh, we went to Cleveland to Ohio which had the tax breaks and uh, it was a, one of the best shoots ever Ed Burns and I had become very good friends and it was a great gig. I, I thought Tyler was fantastic. Excellent. Yeah, you just you just seem to be friends with with every amazing actor in Hollywood, which is great. <laughs> no, it's not true. But there's a there's a certain there's a certain group that that I uh, I'm attracted 
And, and just to clarify earlier, like like you you've said John a couple of times, but I, I think in the early days it was John Turturro, but you were talking about John Cusack, correct? Like with yeah. Identity and a couple of the other recent ones, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just because I was like John, which which, which John? It was John. I'm sorry, John Cusack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just help clarify for the I listeners bet. too. No, no, no worries, no worries. <laughs> so uh, away from movies a little bit. Are you still on the board for the Global Down Syndrome Foundation? Yeah, yeah. We got our big fashion show coming up. Um, and now they've been, they've invited me to speak at the, uh, at a 50, the 50, 50th anniversary gala in Washington, D.C. for the Special Olympics, honoring, uh, Enos Kennedy Shriver, and, uh, I'm writing, I'm writing that now. Oh, uh, excellent. quite daunting, this big black tie event in Washington at the end of the, uh, November. Is there a way those of us who can't make it all the wa- way to Washington are going to be able to see it, access it, support it? I don't know the answer to that. All right. I know it'll be a big, big to do and black tie and blah blah blah, and I'll get more information about it. Um, but all I'm really concerned right now is, I mean, I have 22 minutes I have to fill, and Ooh. I have a pretty good idea of where of what the target is. Excellent. Is That's there a long one. <laughs> are there any like goals the uh, the Global Down Syndrome uh, Council like well, working we're, on? At, at Global, we're, we're the largest fundraiser for exclusively for people with. Um, born with Down syndrome on the planet, and so our our Be Beautiful, Be Be Yourself fashion show, where all our models are young adults with Down syndrome who are accompanied down the runway um, on this one Denver night, uh, where we have about twenty five hundred to twenty six hundred people in the audience. And uh, last year we raised a, more than four million dollars, which is unheard of. Um, and this year, obviously, the goal is to to raise more than that. And what we fund is research. Um, we don't, you know, we don't do the feel-good pamphlets and and all the other kumbaya shit. We we fund science, and science mm-hmm. for Down syndrome is Alzheimer's because everyone our, in our population, if they live long enough, will get Alzheimer's. And so our focus is Alzheimer's. And so at Children's Hospital in Denver. We um, have started a wing of the hospital called the Linda Cernick Institute, and that's where we chair different seats um, of these Alzheimer's research stud men and women from around the planet. And they grind. They grind away at that at that condition. Beautiful. It's yeah, such, such a great work. Yeah, thank you so much for that. It's, it's definitely a great cause. And it's good to know that's that... That's all I really care about, to tell you the truth. That... It, it's so good to hear that you guys are like actually supporting, like giving the money, all of it to the research, as opposed to, as you said, all the kumbaya bullshit. <laughs> no, I've already done the kumbaya stuff, and it it doesn't. You know, I, I was the, I was the chair of the of the buddy walk for years, and which is a, a great thing, and it's a day of inclusion, and but it's more rah rah, and the people out of the global are like, okay, enough, science, 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 science. Everything else, you can you can all hold hands and sing, but science, Excellent. and I love that. That's so good. Excellent. Well, speaking of things you love, uh, is there a favorite like genre of movie uh, in your free time, like when you're just watching movies? Do you have like yeah, a favorite genre? Korean, Korean um, gangster movies, and then yakuza, Japanese. For some reason, for the last couple of years, I can't get enough of them. Really. Yeah, I don't know why, because I, I do know why. Because the actors are amazing, they shoot the living hell out of them. Yeah. Um, and I, I love, you know, like, really good gangster, like, uh, outrage, and um, there's that one where the female is the protagonist, and she just goes around killing everybody, and I forgot what oh, it's called. yeah, yeah, um, um, yeah, because I'm a huge fan of those kind of movies, too, but I, I just didn't expect john c mcginley watching those in his free time but yeah that's that's amazing uh but yeah uh that's they look great the actors are great they shoot the living heck out of them whether it's whether it's yakuza films or or you know gangster are there chinese gang no chinese gangster movies are always set around 1810 and yeah they're they're more I the old like tribal people games flying yeah. on wires that takes me out of the film <laughs> i'm not talking about that when when it, all that wire work, which is cool and it's impossible, but the whole crouching tiger thing—that's uh, uh, not my thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah I'm talking about gangster, the Chinese, the Japanese, and, and Korean gangster movies. Go they're hardcore, and it's, they're great. 
highly recommend Mile 22 then. Oh yeah, Mile. What's Mile 22? That that's actually a new one with uh, Mark Wahlberg and uh, Eco Uwes from uh, The Raid. Oh, have you seen The Raid? Yeah, of course. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's very in that tone, but it's the it just oh, came okay. out in theaters like two weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> Goes through. They go through Indonesia, and it's yeah, it's very much similar pace to The Raid, where it just once it starts, it is relentless. Yeah, I'll, I'll watch that. The director of The Raid directed that, didn't he? Um, I think Peter Berg directed it, but it's the same oh, star. Peter directed it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's a very, very intense little movie you might like, like to check out. <laughs> Peter did, I knew Peter when he was an actor, and he did Midnight Clear with us. Oh, that's He was very right, good. Yeah. Ethan yeah. Hawke and Peter and all these good, Gary Sinise, all these really good actors. Well, and are there any uh, like future like dream projects that you're working on, or that you like to be oh, a part Stan. of? Stan, I love. I want to do Stan for until I get sick of it, which is not going to be for a while. Stan is just the, it's just it's great to be able to, like I told you, uh, to to be able to to protect the tone. Yeah. It doesn't sound like a big deal, but it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we gotta we got gotta get the word out there so that it'll keep getting funded by IFC. That's for sure. Four seasons. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the numbers are. I think they're largely their their peanut has been salted. They're happy. Excellent. Well, yeah. If if, if you're listening and you haven't watched it, uh, it's get the seasons on Amazon Prime right now. I think they're reasonably reasonably priced. Uh, I know we watched them through four or five times. <laughs> um, and just to just to sum everything up, Mr. McGinley, uh, the name of our podcast is Everything I Learned from Movies. Uh, if you could share with us just a few a few lessons that you've learned from making movies or just through your life that you'd like to share with our listeners, uh, that that would be fantastic. Well, the number one thing I learned, uh, definitely doing either movies or plays, it doesn't matter, is you got to show up. And and a lot of times that just sounds so rudimentary, but if you don't show up, there's no there's no there there. You got to show up. Otherwise, people can talk themselves in and out of this, that, and the other thing. But you got to show up, and I mean it physically, and I mean it euphemistically. I mean it spiritually, emotionally. You got to show up, and it pretty much is applicable to everything. You got to show up, yeah. Because everybody's got excuses, like coming out there. You got to show up. I don't care if it's for girls' soccer tomorrow, where my wife is a coach. You know, I, I do the Gatorade. You got to show up. Yeah, got to be there, be present, the be in the moment. Yeah. Oh, the coach's husband forgot it. What? <laughs> what are you talking about? Got to keep Show up. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Mr. McGinley, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking time out of your day. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. Is there uh, anywhere we can, you know, anywhere we can follow you on, like social media or, um, you know, is it, well, yeah, Twitter? I think it's, it's John. I don't know all this stuff, but it's it's like John C. McGinley. So one with, one with the check mark next to it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to do a plug for like your rest that. of I like Twitter. I don't understand the rest of them. I don't get this. I don't understand Facebook. I don't. I don't know how to. So I don't. There's one there, but I don't. I don't. I understand Twitter. All right. <laughs> do you want to do a plug for your restaurant or anything? No, my restaurant. That, I got in and out of restaurants back in back when I lived in New York. Mm-hmm. Now I just uh, now the the restaurant here is is. John's Kitchen, where I cook for Max and Nicole and Billy and Kate. <laughs> Excellent. Is there a specialty on the menu that you, uh, you're you particularly proud of? I do a thing called uh, Binkity Bank, which is a, a pasta with also, it's kind of like Think Pasta Bar, where you gotta, you got to make all these fresh ingredients from the chicken where you make it on the grill and then you chop it up to the basil where you chop up the basil, maybe saute the tomatoes nice. Um, and then you take them all and you put them in tiny bowls, and then you make the wagon wheel pasta, and the girls and Maxie get to go down the line and put on the top of the wagon wheel pasta whatever they want. It's very labor intensive. Doesn't sound like much, but you got to chop the carrots tiny. You got to chop the celery tiny. Everything's got to be tiny. Then you put it on top of that what those wagon wheels. Mm. With garlic on there, maybe some some sautéed uh, onions. What are you kidding me? Yeah, it sounds delicious. Oh, Honey, God. I know what we're Dude. having for dinner. Right? <laughs> guess what happens? Uh, guess, guess what happens with Binkity Bink? People go back for seconds and thirds. Guaranteed! Ooh. <laughs> All right. John C. McGinley's Binkity Bink. <laughs> we'll get the Binkity recipe. Bink. And I took it from when Jimmy Conn tells Al, you know, Al says, what, what, what do I do in the bathroom if I can't get the gun when I'm about to shoot 
Sterling Hayden. And he goes, I don't know, think of something, biggity-bink, biggity-boo. And <laughs> it, in other words, he just like, you know, t- t- put something together. And so I stole it from, from Jimmy Kahn and Godfather. Yeah, I, I was thinking, like, where, where have I heard that? I was thinking of Sopranos or something, but, yeah, <laughs> now that you mention it, it's amazing. No, it's when, it's when, Jim, when, when Jimmy's given Al instructions for how to kill Sterling Hayden. Oh, nice. Is. Excellent. Oh, my God. Thank you oh, so much. Perfect. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, I'll I'll get the information I can with the uh, uh, Down Syndrome Council and get that posted on the website and everything. So when people download, they'll have a link to it and how they can donate and everything, too, because that's su- such a great cause. And uh, Definitely. Uh, and again, thank you just so much for taking time out of your day. We're huge fans. This mm-hmm. is an incredible moment for us, really. Is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm thrilled. I'm glad, you're, uh, I'm glad you, you got hip to stand. And uh, when do you get a load of season three? It's going to blow the back of your head off. Oh, can't wait. Um, Also, uh, I am a painter and an illustrator. I have a little shop on Etsy. Steve can send you the link uh, as a thank you for coming on our show. If there's anything in my little shop that you see that you want, let Steve know. We can send it to a mailing address. A lot of it's like very kid-friendly stuff. So if they see anything you think the kids might like or you might want to like, I don't know, raffle off or whatever, uh, I'd be happy to send you something. That's so groovy. Thank you, Izzy. Oh, thank you. We really appreciate your time. We know that you're busy and you got the kids, and I don't even know how you juggle it. <laughs> yeah, I'm taking Max down to Surfer's, Surfer's Healing right now. Oh, fine. Which he will either... At first he hates it when he goes in the water, but then he's fine once he gets in. My friends who are really good surfers take um, different kids with different levels of challenges out, and they get them in the water. And at first Max is just like, no! Oh. And then he gets in the water, and he's like... I love it. My sister used uh, my sister is a horse trainer, and she used to work with the group. Uh, fortunately, she moved now, but um, they would get kids with various dif- disabilities and different levels on ponies, and it was uh, like riding for healing. Well, yeah, John Max learned how to walk hippotherapy. Yeah, for the horses, they call it hippotherapy. Yeah, mm. she she used to do that. In fact, that's how she got the blind pony. Because oh. the guy no, Max learned how to walk. Excellent! It's such a good, it's such good therapy. It's great. Oh. All right, I gotta go. They're gonna right. yell at me here in a minute. Go yeah, have yeah. fun. Have Thank a, you so much, day, sir. Thank guys. you so much. Bye. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm so awesome. <laughs> Shaking my phone. Sorry, the lights. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, babe, we just talked. To one of the coolest <laughs> motherfuckers ever, John C. McGinley. You just got dogged by John C. I did get <laughs> That was so good. That was so yeah. good. That's our new ad. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of movies, Steve. A couple, a couple of movies. Movies. Only six. <laughs> Goddamn, John C. McGinley busted my balls on everything I learned from movies. Uh, no, I just, the coffee's kicking in, and by the way... Jossie McGinley said I'm his girl. Right? <laughs> I got that too, and I'm like, whoa. So I almost made Dana Gould cry. James Taylor called me uh, called me Susie, and John C. McGinley called me his girl. I'm like trying to think of my celebrity like pilot. <laughs> oh my god. So yeah, if you uh, enjoyed that interview, tell a friend. Have them listen to it as well. Uh, we're at eilfm.podbean.com. No, we're still recording, aren't we? We are still recording, yes. And if you're interested in an extended version of this interview, uh, hit us up on Patreon at patreon.com slash EILFmovies. Uh, we have basically the full version of the interview. It's an extra, gosh, almost a half hour uh, of Mr. McGinley going into basically his entire uh, filmography. But yeah, a lot of great stories and stuff there as well. And also, I mean, we have over 20 past full-length commentaries and lots of other bonus episodes for Patreon. Just $5 a month includes everything. Um, and there's other benefits from there, including buttons and picking episodes for us. Uh, but yeah, check it out. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, but yeah, uh, definitely go to the, um, uh, I'll, I'll have the links for, uh, the Down Syndrome Council and everything. Uh, it's yeah, just it's a great global. cause. Yeah. It, you so know what? Amazing. I love causes that they actually send the money like for research like it's usually the ones you've never heard of because they're not out there advertising susan g komen 80 percent of that money goes to their operating costs yeah you know what you're donating when you buy pink you're donating to people buying more pink shit (laughs) from indonesia or wherever yeah Yeah, like just like give money to breast cancer research just give money to like the global down syndrome foundation just you know go find some cat rescue no forget the cat rescue (laughs) just 
No, because it gets them off the streets. Find, find a cat distillery that will turn them into <laughs> fine alcohol. And uh, oh, other thing. If anybody out there knows where I can find video of celebrity American gladiators with John C. John McGinley C. and Dean Cain and <laughs> apparently a cheap shot from Diamond or Fierce or whatever, uh, <laughs> it would be greatly appreciated if you could just message us at EILF Movies. That's everything I learned from movies. Uh, so until next time, I'm Steve. And I'm Izzy. And this is Everything, everything I Learned from movies. movies. Have a good night, everybody. Good night. To the dear souls that Claire hath left behind, her daughter Denise, her beloved husband, Sheriff Stanley Miller, earth to earth, ashes to ashes. Claire Miller, what the hell were you up to? This whole town's haunted. Just because of the witch burnings? 172 falsely accused witches want us dead. Ah! Well, don't crap an apple. Let me take care of it. Oh, shit! Pipe to the head, never fails. Bagulp has arrived! Oh, All I want to do is nothing, and I can't even do that. Stand Against Evil, Wednesdays at 10, starts November 2nd on IFC.